I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sans Pants Radio. Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone and welcome to Bookish, I'm George Jim Ross. this is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have comedian and Jew, David Rose, how are you doing David? Hello, I made him say that, uh, I made him say the comedian part, not the Jew part, that was his choice, very anti-Semitic. Look, I just wanted that clarified at the top, you know, just, uh, <laughs> I'd like to know the race of everyone as soon as they come on the show, that's the first question. Well, originally the show was going to be called Bookish and Jewish, but then you couldn't find enough Jews, so now it's just Bookish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and now, now after today, I can put the Jewish back in. <laughs> You did, and just yes, you did. You, yeah, you did tell me to say that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. It is. It's because he was going to shave his mustache as well to like thin it down a little bit, make get a bit of a toothbrush thing going on. I was like, man, I don't do it. That's that's not appropriate. It's twenty twenty one. There's certain jokes, all right. You know, exposure is exposure. Yeah, exactly. That's true as well. Okay, that's. I feel like that might be the one bit of exposure that that's not helpful no. except in certain <laughs> uh, groups. Yeah, I you know I I do a bit about this, but I actually did get I wrote uh, I used to write for Cracked dot com. Do you yeah. remember Cracked dot com? The listicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually had a guy on here who does the videos for them in the US. Yeah, right. Well, I used to write articles for them, and I wrote an article. Um, and one of the like part of the article made fun of the Ku Klux Klan, and they read it and started sending me hate mail about it, which was amazing because I didn't know they could read. But yeah. God, like they put they put my article on Stormfront and stuff like that, and people started sending me weird messages for a couple of months. It's very strange, and I hadn't even found out I was Jewish yet, so it was just just pure. It was it's sort of white on white racism. Yeah. Well, they just hated me for me. They didn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's at least it's more personalized than I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was quite but then, nice. But then it does actually. You can take it more personal as well. You're like, oh, if it was just for my Jewish race, then it wouldn't be that bad. Yeah, it couldn't affect me. But they, <laughs> they just don't like person. my comedy. <laughs> yeah. this, this hurts a lot more, actually. <laughs> Oh, I better, I better find out. That's why it was such a relief when you were like Jews. Like, oh, they could sense it. Yeah. They could sense my Jewishness <laughs> in my writing. That's obviously what it was. Um, cool. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, I guess get it, like, get let to know a bit about you before we get into the book and stuff. So, you're a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, you, how long have you been doing comedy for? Uh, started in 2013. Although, I was thinking about this. My first gig ever was uh, in like grade five camp. I did a uh, Dave Allen routine in front of like the, the camp. And stuff like that. Really? Did, did a bit of a pratfall, yeah. It was a, one of my favorite jokes when I was a kid, where it was a, a little boy is at a cocktail party, and he says to the um, the woman running it, he says, do lemons have feathers? And she's like, no, why? And he goes, well, in that case, I've just squeezed your canary into my juice, which is not a great joke, but it's a great joke for a kid in grade five. I thought that was very funny. So I did like- I did, 
I did that I like joke. It. It's weirdly dark. I didn't expect yeah, it. It was pretty dark for a, for a grade five kid. So I did that joke in grade five. And then when I was in year 12, I had to do a... Um, we had like an, the way that you used to get like elected in year 12 to the sort of leadership positions, like school captain or whatever, is it wasn't like a debate thing. It was basically like stand up. They would get like five or six kids up on the stage, five or six year, year 11s, and they would, um, they'd have to like pitch to the school why they should be elected as the uh, whatever. So I, I, a friend of mine was going for performing arts captain, and so I, I basically decided to go for it just because I thought it'd be funny if I got it and he didn't. I didn't even want the job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember we had it was around the time with uh, a lot of the kids and the girls in sex ed. They got given those babies. Do you remember that the little fake babies? I went to a all boys school. Oh, so that yeah, because men don't raise children, so they don't have to do that. No. Yeah. Exactly. It, thinking back, it's really sexist that they only gave the girls the babies. To like show them what it would be like to be pregnant, these little mechanical babies, and if you put them down for too long, they start crying and stuff like that, and you'd have to like um, put a uh, sucker to their mouth to like uh, simulate breastfeeding and stuff like that. Really is sexist. This, now I think of it. This is this a normal thing in schools, or is it just you? Like I don't, I don't know. know. This, I, I can see it in TV sitcom uh, episodes, but well, not in like it real happened. Life. Yeah, it happened at our school. Anyway, I remember getting up and being what like, school is yours? I remember getting up and being like, uh, good evening, ladies and Amish school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, no, Amish kids Amish. wouldn't have had. Yeah, they wouldn't have, have mechanical babes. That's no. true. But yeah, what were you saying? Yeah, I got up and was like, uh, good evening, uh, ladies, gentlemen, teachers and mechanical babies. And I got a laugh and I was like, oh, I like this. So, yeah, I, but my first like stand up, stand up gig was 2013 at Raw Comedy. Right. Uh, so you didn't do uh, like any performing acting wise or anything like that either. Well, I did like amateur theater when I was a little kid and like, um, you know, like there was a, a group called Gemco in Emerald, which is actually where Julian Assange grew up. Um, so he, he could have been a theater kid and that they had a an amateur theater this thing for- what happens, for, you don't invest in the arts. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you take down the global elite. Yeah, yeah. WikiLeaks is really just a result of him not reading enough Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be or not to be a hacker. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, uh, I used to do. US government. <laughs> I used to do theater there, but yeah, uh, I didn't. I don't know. I don't like acting. I think I'm a narcissist. So I'm like, if I'm not writing the material, I don't want to be delivering it. Okay. okay. It's weird because I look at actors and I'm like, what, like, why are you celebrated? You're just playing pretend. Like this doesn't matter. And then I look at comedy. I'm like, comedy is important, and it's just as stupid. It's just telling like stupid. It's just basically like applied linguistics. Just like figuring out how to make language surprising to people and you're getting paid for it. I don't know. They're both useless professions, really, if COVID has taught us anything. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, if you wanted to find that way. But I mean, I, I, I yes, obviously, compared to, I don't know, feeding a starving child or whatever, um, or whatever that bullshit, but also like uh, to to say the acting side of things, one thing I think that makes it so powerful, the, the, the fact that if you're a good actor, I think it means you're really, really, really deeply well in touch with both yourself and how other people perceive you and how you like you're just very much in sync with both yourself and the world and the way you can project things is being able to do that i heard uh, jordan peterson yesterday was talking about the role of the artist is to have you ever noticed jordan peterson sounds like kermit the frog yeah yeah he's like the role of the artist is to show you what you've been seeing all along the role of the artist yeah <laughs> the role of the artist is that yeah it's to, to show you back, to show you, you what you've been seeing all along but you've never noticed do you like jordan peterson I do like Jordan Peterson. Really? Yeah. Uh, do you find he's some of his videos, you know, problematic? Yeah, but who cares? Like, 
Plato thought that if you wrote things down that you wouldn't uh, have the capacity of memory anymore and that you'd forget them. Wasn't Plato Well, you know, they may have been the same person. It's debatable. But I yeah. Think they were. <laughs> well, no, there's an argument that Socrates and uh, that Plato may have been an invention of Socrates or the other way around. I'm not sure which one it is, but one one may be an invention of the other. It's a bold, like I feel like there's a lot of stuff about well, actually, going going to acting, a lot of those old uh, philosophical texts are not texts. They're actually written to be performed. They were shows. They were like touring shows. So Socrates would go and he'd do his hour, you know, having the, the dialectical in front of a crowd. Yeah. Angel stand up, baby. I don't mind Jordan Peterson. I don't have to agree with everything someone says to to think they have some good things to say. Well, this is the thing. Peter Peterson isn't a philosopher. He's a trained psychologist. Who, yeah, he's in every set. Who has social? Yes. He's a social commentator. Who, yeah, you wouldn't, you shouldn't be going to Jordan Peterson for philosophy advice, but you can occasionally pick something out of the sort of miasma of wordage that he throws at people, and go, oh yeah, I'll take that one. You know, if you look at it like a buffet, just take what you want from it and leave the rest. Yeah, I mean, and then, uh, but then obviously the, the argument comes down to, well, then why don't you find someone who's probably got. More clarity and more and more more consistency in their views. So, like I'd say, go back to the classics, Plato and Socrates, yeah. and all that. You go to those guys, and then they that as well. I mean, it's it's an issue of grass is always greener on the other side. I remember I did a philosophy degree, and seeing Peter Singer, who's a utilitarian. Uh, I think now he's not a utilitarian. I think he's something else. I think he used to be a preference utilitarian. Now he's an act utilitarian. It's not worth getting into. Yeah, but. Um, he was on Andrew Denton's show and he's always been an advocate for euthanasia um, in circumstances even where the person can't consent if things are uh, tr- troublesome enough for that person that they, they would consent if they could sort of thing. And Andrew Denton said, well, that's all well and good, but would you do that if it was your own mother? And Peter Singer was like, I did do that with my own mother. Her, I, what he said is we withheld treatment to let her go be, uh, because you can't at that time you couldn't legally euthanize someone in Victoria, mm-hmm. and Andrew Denton was like, oh, um, like he didn't know what to do with it, and so you know when you go oh well I want clarity and I want consistency of views when you get that sometimes you still don't know what to do with it because when you hear a guy go oh yeah no I I killed my mother because it's aligns with my philosophy you're like oh shit maybe I would have preferred if you were a bit more ambiguous. <laughs> Well, just because you want to—that's you just being a coward and wanting to buckle. And you know what? That is—that is—that's the point. That's anti-Peterson to be saying that because it's like the whole point is you're meant to be getting like the world is messy and complicated, and we're mm. trying to do our best to stake out a position within this chaos. Yeah, I gotta just say, I, yeah. I tend to appreciate consistency of views. I don't actually mind. You know, it's like it's like people saying, "Oh, we should deplatform Nazis or whatever." I'm, I'm, I don't mind the Nazis having a platform as long as they're consistent, as long as they don't try and hide what they what they're doing. When they start speaking and double speak and and trying to uh signal to the people they're trying to signal to without anyone else knowing, that's when it's a problem. But if there was some guy who just had a YouTube channel and was like, I love Hitler, I'd be like, well cool, I know where you stand. Yeah. I you mean, stand straight with your arm up in the air. <laughs> no, how you stand, yeah, where you stand and how you stand. Um yeah, look, I think that's the classic uh people are like, oh, it's good to have it out in the open. That's a classic thing. It's like free speech, you know, have it out there. But the problem is when does it go from having it out there to, okay, now it's actually just getting promoted. So it's like before I couldn't find so easily these communities of hate and go down that rabbit hole. But now it's so easy. It almost feels like 
I mean, again, we can't say we're going to temper it and get rid of it because that's <laughs> dictatorship stuff. But yeah. it's messy, I think, that it's not as clean as being like, I like it being out because actually being out can be like, oh, no, this is just this is actually helping it grow. No, it's tough. And it's, I think it, it comes down to sort of it's you sort of have to view it almost like medically like you were viewing a cancer. Like you can have one cancer cell and uh, if it's benign, they may not remove it if it's one cell. But yeah. if it's a, a growth that has the potential to grow further, that's when you have to remove it. I mean, Germany is an interesting example because it's illegal to be a Nazi in Germany. It's like literally illegal. If you if you do this um, the Hitler salute, you will like actually, you can go to jail or you'll get fined. But that's because there what was- a German solution to the problem. <laughs> talk about- We Ger- will ban it. I like the fact that we you said- We will ban dictatorships. I like the fact that you said solution as well. It's not their final solution. But- um. You know, and that is understandable because there's such an undercurrent of anti-Semitism there. Even now, I suspect that they are sort of they have acknowledged like now this is too dangerous to let the genie out of the bottle. We have to clamp down on this. But I think in a in a free society where where tensions aren't as as high, the stakes aren't as high. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to know what people think. Yeah. No. Look. This is, it, it, or yeah. Again, to to, to to say it again with the George like you know, I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying it's more complex. I think people like to be like, oh yeah, just have it out there and then it's fine. It's like no, but also let's not block it completely. But it is mm. more complicated than saying. But at the end of at because- the end of the day, what this is is a conversation between uh, an extremely white man and a vaguely white sort of olivey looking man uh, living in Australia. So. Yeah. Well, what the fuck do either of us know? So to go back to you, since we've gone off on this wild tangent, uh, what? So you studied? What did you actually study? I studied law and German because I'm a Jew and I don't like taking chances. And uh, no, I I did study law and German. I did German in high school and then I I kept doing it at university. Did you, are you German? Uh, actually, no. Weirdly, though, I've been researching my ancestry. My great grandfather, who my comedy festival show is about this year, he spoke German to his wife. Uh, his parent, his parents were. Austro-Hungarian Jews that emigrated in like the 1890s, and so he grew up speaking German, and so he met his wife at a um at a clinic in Karlsbad in in Germany, or what was I think then sort of a contested territory, and they wrote their they sort of conducted their marriage in German for the most part, even though he was American and she was Czech. Right. So I've got love letters written between them that are all in German, and it's huh. been it's been interesting to read them all because you know I can. Hmm. So and is that is that why you learned? Like, why did you learn German? I just uh, wanted to. I don't know. At my school, it was either German or Indonesian. And okay. I was like, well, I don't want to learn Indonesian, so I'll learn German. And then it just continued. And yeah, I got interested in the culture and the people, and continued to learn it. And then I think there was also my grandfather spoke German, probably because his father spoke German and his parents spoke German. So it's could have come down the line. My grandfather died when I was like six, but. I have a lot of his old German vocabulary books. He was an amazing illustrator as well. So he'd sort of write down the German word for uh, table and then he'd draw a beautiful illustration of a table next to it to remember it. So it's been sort of a nice oh, inheritance. So like a real, yeah, so it's a really deep connection mm. in that sense, that yeah. emotional link. Yeah, even though I didn't, I wasn't conscious of it at the time, I, I think I've probably continued with it now because it feels like a family legacy almost. Yeah, I don't I like it. Yeah, it's something which makes it more appealing, more when it's got that personal thing to it, that mm. legacy. Oh, cool. And it's also good to have German in your back pocket for comedy because, you know, they're such funny people that it's always uh, it's always good to play with the Germans. I get Oh, yeah. my God, that was so funny. I've never laughed so much in my life. <laughs> no, I, I like my issue with the German stuff is always uh, how hack it feels after being doing comedy this long, how much people always go to the same obvious jokes with Germans. It's like at least – 
Get some nuance, like as in go to Germany, get realize that there's a lot of jokes you can make which aren't just well. That's Hitler. that's that's my favorite thing is that I do have some jokes poking fun at the Germans for the you know the Second World War and actually for the for the most part First World War way better. Oh, exactly, yeah, <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm. Yeah, <laughs> but for the most part, Germans are pretty okay with it because they're like, yeah, we know we fucked up. But I had a German couple come to my show. And uh, she was like, yeah, I really liked it. I really love because I have this whole routine about like how I spy in Germany is actually pronounced. It's the translation of I spy in Germany. The game is I see something that you don't see. And that's just so li- that's how that's how literal Germans are. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I really like that. I love the fact that you actually know enough about our culture to like talk, talk about it in a nuanced way mm. rather than just. Oh, Germany bad. Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. Yeah, Hitler, Hitler. Oh, Germans aren't funny. Ha, ha, ha. It's like, let's... Mm. But you need need both. You need to sort of throw out the birdseed for the audience first, get them used to the idea that you're going to be talking about Germany before you go straight into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's more just like one of those, you know, when you've done comedy for a while, you're like... It's the same reason I've discussed with someone recently when people talk about cancel culture and how comedy's not... uh, Oh, you know, you can't say anything anymore. And the view being like, well, you can you can say anything. In fact, it's not even cancel culture. It's just boredom. Like yeah. those jokes are so boring and dumb that we're just past the obvious racist jokes. Like do something new. Make it interesting. I mean, yeah, I I do think there is an extent to which there are certain topics, especially in a city like Melbourne, where you wouldn't touch them if you were on the opposite side of the zeitgeist. Yeah. But that's fine. Like if you want to do that, if you want to go on stage, take the creative risk and say something the audience is going to hate and figure out how to make it funny to them. Yeah. You know, that, like- I don't think there's anything I wouldn't talk about if I thought I had something funny to say on it. There's a lot of things I just haven't thought about. So I'm like, why would I say that? Hmm. Uh, yeah. I, why would I approach that topic? It's just not my topic. Hmm. I just, so you're just going to stick to the safe stuff like Jewish people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like Jewish people on the Holocaust. And their history. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. But, you know, like I've got a slight disability. I was talking to this um, comic last night who's, uh, he's, um, he, he can't use his legs. What's the word for that? Um, pathetic? No, uh, paraplegic. Uh, no, but he here's, here's the thing. I have a disability and he has a disability and we were both giving each other shit. Like I would, I was making fun of his thing. He was making fun of my thing. I've got hearing loss. And disabled people don't mind if you give them shit about it as if it's good natured. You know, like mm. I obviously don't think people in wheelchairs are pathetic, but it's funny if you're from the perspective of someone who's lived with disability to give someone shit about it because people treat you with kid gloves so often that sometimes you, you literally you do welcome someone who's willing to say something a bit fucked up to you. And he was saying that like when he goes to comedy clubs and they don't have um they don't have a ramp to get in. He was saying that that's that's like if you went to a club and you saw that they had a, a queer pride flag on it and they had a cross to it like you can't come in. He said, like, your building would get burnt down. Like, people would hate you for it. But not putting a ramp in is the same thing. It's saying you're not welcome here. It's, it's an act of omission rather than an act of intentionality mm. that you don't want them there. But the effect is the same. And he was, we were talking about it. And I said, you know, in a weird way, wouldn't it, it would almost be nicer if they put a picture of a wheelchair with a cross to it. Because at least then you'd be like, oh, at least they're thinking about me. At least I'm on their mind enough that they don't want me here. Yeah. Rather than they're just fucking lazy and they didn't even think about it. Yeah. You know, in a way, in a way, I sort of welcome the, the, um, the negativity. If if it's, if it shows that they've at least engaged with you as a person, like you can have different opinions. That's fine. But when it when it's just an act of omission, somehow that's more hurtful. Mm. And so yeah, I I think that that's a really interesting thing with talking about these things on stage. I mean, if you're going to make a joke about something, you can even make a joke against it 
if you frame it properly. And people who have that thing won't mind. Like I've heard, I've heard a lot of jokes about deaf people, and it's always like, "Oh, are there any deaf people tonight? Oh, well, if they are, they didn't hear me anyway." And I'm like, "Just, just you're fucking lazy, man. Mm. You're just being fucking lazy." Yeah. Like, come up with a funny deaf joke, and I will laugh at it. But just be creative. To do something interesting. Like I did a gig the other night. I mentioned I was Jewish, and there was a guy in a Hawaiian shirt, older guy. That was a good sign. And I go, I'm Jewish, and he goes, "Can I smell gas?" And I'm like, I wasn't even offended. I was just like, you fucking lazy cunt. Like, just, you know? That's exactly the same stuff. And that's what I'm saying is in, a, which I guess is the same thing from the German point of view, but it's the same thing there. It's like, it's just, come on, man. There's so much. There's yeah. so like, much you if can I, do. If I said I'm Jewish. It doesn't make sense. What do you mean I can smell gas? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I said I'm Jewish and he said something like, uh, I don't know if I was wearing a stripy shirt and he's like, you just come from the camps or something. I'd be like, well, that's incredibly offensive, but I'll pay it. At yeah. least it's like a sort of interesting leap that you've gone from that thing to that thing. But just going, can I smell gas? So you just want to remind me of the Holocaust? Is that is that all you're doing here? You're yeah. just reminding me of it? Because that's just not interesting. Yeah. Which uh, you can sound like a psychopath, I think, this discussion we're having right now. People might be like, don't you care about the feelings and stuff? It's like, yeah, we do. But we're talking from a comedy point of view. Just the, the material gets boring because you hear it all. We've heard everything. Well, it's not even that it gets boring. It just it, it just yeah, displays a stunning lack of imagination. If you're going to be bigoted, be be creative. <laughs> be, be an interesting bigot. <laughs> we've heard all the boring heckles, guys. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just- exactly. Yeah, and then and then sometimes they can be so happy about it as well. You're like, ah, I'm so funny. Like, well, yeah, sometimes you get like one where you're like, where did that come from? Like someone came up to me and said, uh, you're not Jewish. And I said, yeah, I am. She goes, you're not wearing the little hat. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, you're not wearing your Yamaha. And I'm like, it's Yamaha, you idiot. But I was like, that's fine. I'm happy with you. I, I, I would welcome, if someone said shit like that to me after every gig, I'd be fine with it. I'd collect them and write a little book about it. Yeah, I've jumped around a lot. Um Let's go to the book and then we'll come back. Because Actually, just quickly to clarify. So then you did law. Did you actually work in law or did you go from coach? Yeah, I worked in law for two years at a law firm. I was a paralegal technically, but I was basically a lawyer because my boss just like, there was a lot of work that he didn't want to do. He wanted to deal with bigger clients because we had a couple of like really, really, really big clients. So he basically just said to me like, look, you deal with these clients and at the end, I'll just tick at the bottom of the page and say that I did it sort of thing. I mean, I love the honesty. Yeah, so I had a couple of years at a law firm and was that insane hours? No, because I worked remotely. It was very autonomous. I sort of just sat at home and did my own thing. And the only reason it ended is my boss left the company and then I was uh, transferred as a paralegal to a new lawyer who sort of wanted a more traditional nine-to-five working relationship and I just didn't want to be doing that. And I was doing so much comedy by then anyway that it wouldn't have really worked. Right. And so I was in a way I was lucky that that happened because I sort of got summarily fired and I was running a couple of comedy shows at that point. And they were supplementing my income. And when I lost the law job, I looked at my income and went, if I run one more of these gigs or I pick up enough paid gigs in the meantime, then I don't need the law job anyway. So that was when I started doing comedy full time. And that would have been like 20, uh, 2017, 2018. Right. Mm. You've been doing it ever since? Yeah, pretty much. Nice. That's good. That's a, uh, yeah, in Australia, it's uh, not that common. No, well, I mean, I, I say I'm doing comedy full time, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm running gigs of my own and performing on them and I'm being booked by other people to perform on their things and doing like ABC documentaries and things like that in the meantime. But yeah, you can't, no one is really a stand-up comedian in the pure, purest form in Australia, except maybe Carl Barron. 
Like there's no there's no comics who just do stand up. Yeah, who just do perform on stage, um, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't really. Yeah, it's not really a thing here. No, uh, the market's a bit small. I think mm. not enough. Uh, not enough little towns. Not enough big little towns. I think that's a big thing. Like as in in the, in the states, but even like the UK, there's a million little, like not little little, but big little towns. You know what I mean? Yeah, you go to like Boise, uh, Indiana, or whatever, and they'll, they'll have a club there. Where yeah. like if you if you leave Sydney, there there won't be another club till you get to Brisbane. Yeah, kind of thing. I guess, or at least not maybe one. <laughs> yeah, is like you'd have like fifty in the UK or something. Uh, we. Uh, are you from Sydney or from Melbourne? Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne. Okay. I don't know why you're mentioning. Okay, because, yeah, distance. Um, so, okay. So, now, let's go into the book since we've been this long. Uh, your book of choice for today is? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My favorite book. Douglas Adams, my favorite writer. Yeah. Um, that I mean, everyone. I don't even need to describe. <laughs> I usually, I give a description, but Hitchhiker's Guide, no need for a description. Um, yeah. So, why, why? Have you read all these have you read anything apart from you've read? I'm guessing the quintet that is Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, so I've read the the trilogy of five, mm-hmm. uh, and I've read he had a book that was released posthumously called The Salmon of Doubt, which was just a lot of writings of his. And Dirk Gently's are pretty good, but Hitchhiker's my favorite. There's another book coming out next year, next year or this year or something like that, but it's been crowdfunded, so they're not publishing unless enough people support it, which I think is from him. From him, yeah. You'd think that I don't know. I, don't know. I think he's a state of self-publishing. I'm not quite sure. That uh, sounds very suspicious. Yeah, but it's, it's, <laughs> he's he's such a good writer. He just those those turns of phrase, those jokes in it that are so so surprising. Like um, he had one: the the clouds hung in the air the same way that bricks don't. Oh, what a bizarre way of phrasing something. Or he said, um, the thunder rolled across the mountains like someone saying. And another thing: thirty minutes after losing an argument. That's great. Yeah. yeah, that's real good. Uh, no, he's 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 great. Like, in, I think there's a certain. Uh, you've read? Have you read any Terry Pratchett? No, I've read. A, I've read one of the Discworld things. I think. Yeah, but I think. I think all British authors and uh, comics, all they they all draw from the same well, which is PG Woodhouse. Yeah, they all draw from Jeeves and Wooster, and then they put their little spin on it. Really, I mean, Hitchhiker's Guide could be a Jeeves and Wooster book if he if he had lived long enough to write sci-fi. It's character comedy, essentially. You've got Marvin the Android, you've got Zaphod, you've got Arthur Dent. It's all just character comedy. It's basically just like a sitcom in a book. And it wasn't a book originally, it was a radio play. Mm. And then it became a book. So it's it's very much a theatrical performance condensed into a novel. Luckily, he was a good enough writer that the novel stands on its own. Mm. It's surprising how much like, yeah, people who can switch between those mediums and keep up the same... Tradition of yeah, there's the same thing. Basically, it's funny. Um, so you've read some PG Woodhouse? Yeah, yeah. I got given a couple of PG Woodhouses for a couple of Christmases ago. Yeah, he's very. It's very clever. It's very. So it's good. very English. It's very sort of. Um, it's a lot of wordplay, and you can see that in Douglas Adams's writing, like where he says, um, "Oh, it's it's being teleported is quite unpleasant. It's like being drunk. Well, what's so bad about being drunk? Well, why don't you ask a glass of water?" That kind of thing. It's almost, it's almost like vaudeville. Yeah, yeah. writing. I know it's it, it 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 does have a certain flow. And yeah, Pete Woodhouse is brilliant. I think it's it's one of I'll slowly get through all of them, but I just love every like two pages is a brilliant line in anything he writes. Um, the so did you do you read much of comedy books like that like that like comedy because I've got to be I probably don't. So. Yeah, I think I used to. Not so much anymore. I sort of have them. I, if I see one in an op shop, I'll usually buy it just to have it. 
because I'm like the secrets in there somewhere. You <laughs> still crack the code yeah, finally. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't really. I mean, yeah. Uh, but I, I think comic novels are, are a different beast to like comedy books. You know, when when stand ups write a book and it's almost always like just a, a collection of jokes that they would have done on stage, and it doesn't read like a novel. It does, the prose is just not appropriate to the form. And, yeah, and so like. I wouldn't. I, there's not many stand-ups whose books I would read because most stand-ups are, are bad writers. They're good performers and they're they're good at performing the material they've written. But as actual authors, they're pretty crappy. I think Steve Martin's the only one that I would say really nailed that form. Mm. Steve Martin's book *Born Standing Up* is incredible, and it, it's it's a genuine work of literature. You reckon? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly well-written book. Like, I think it's. I, like, I loved it, but it's more, I think, I loved it because of the insight it gives into the world and, like, his experience in it and it's pretty candid about everything. Um, but if you go back and you read it as a reader, not talking, not looking at it from a comedy point of view, just the, the, the word, like, the way he writes, there's a great line in it where he's talking about someone he used to see when he was on tour. He he said, you know, he'd have a, a, a woman in every town he'd pass through when he was touring and he said, um, were they beautiful? Uh, we were all beautiful. We were in our 20s. Yeah. It's just a, it's a very well crafted piece of work, mm. whereas a lot of comics are just you know they, their books will be like, oh, has, have you ever noticed it when you have a dog it looks like their owner and it's just it's just stand up in in print form. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, I think I'd like to think it's probably expanded a bit more now, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like, uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld had literally one of those. Yeah, sign language. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good book if you want to read a book of jokes, but it's not a good book if you want to read a book. Yeah, or or get any insight into anything really. And the, the, we were talking about this before we started, but the terminal problem of most comedians is they have no lives outside of comedy. So when they write about their lives, they're writing about doing comedy, and there's nothing more boring to an audience than hearing about. Yeah, I saw someone once do stand up, and they literally had a joke where they go, "You know that feeling when you're doing stand up." And I was like, no, they don't. <laughs> That's why they're here. If they were doing it, they wouldn't be watching this. And they certainly wouldn't be enjoying it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Steve oh, Martin managed hilarious. to he managed to sort of um uh walk that tightrope between writing about being a performer without falling into the trap of writing for performers. Mm. Like I've given that book to people who aren't comics and aren't even interested in comedy and they still have found it quite compelling. Well, I mean, it, I mean, I wonder if this relates to the fact that he wasn't doing stand-up. Like, I mean, he was, but he wasn't. Yeah, true. He was writing it in a sort of novelistic fashion because he was no longer in that world. But and, even, but even when he was in that world, he wasn't ever a stand-up comedian in the classic sense of set-up punchline. No, no, he was, he was, he was very absurdist. theatrical. And okay. Douglas Adams, actually, to get back to him, he was in Footlights. He he was in the Cambridge, oh. the Cambridge Review, which is where Monty Python came from, and Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry. A lot of those people came through the Footlights. So Douglas Adams began as a performer as well, which again is why it's surprising that he was able to write such a such a great novel or series yeah. of novels. It's bloody English, huh? Yeah, it's bloody English. Bloody English, and they grasp of the damn goddamn language. Taken over the world of taken over the real world, the intellectual world. What can't they do <laughs> except cook? Yeah, <laughs> you can't have everything. But they've just claimed the countries they can. So yeah, still exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the- well, I mean that's true though. They did conquer parts of the world for spices yeah they were just like my food is bland let's go to india <laughs> let's go to- that's someone's bit i think i think that's someone's joke i don't know it must be it's yeah. a that it's weird that tea tea was 
Is that from India? It's well, yeah, India, Sri Lanka. Are you sure. Yeah. So it's so weird how that became such a like. It's such a part of British culture when you think about it. So that works. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, so, firstly, funny that, of course, you went to Cambridge. Uh, Douglas Adams, but uh, the part that I would say, which I also find interesting, uh, but this probably this might not be something to do with anything, but you mentioned how like, oh, P.G. Woodhouse, if he went, was a bit longer, he might have written something he went into sci-fi. But actually, that's actually part of which I think is interesting about Douglas Adams specifically uh, is the high concept sci-fi stuff that he actually squeezes into this silliness. Like I said, he, he puts in some pretty very interesting concepts. Yeah, he was a very, very early adopter of the internet. Like, in fact, his website, uh, which was H. H2G2, I don't know if it still exists anymore, but it was the prototype for Wikipedia. The idea was to create a digital hitchhiker's guide. So he had people contributing articles about whatever topic they wanted. You can kind of go through the forums and go, I want to learn about owls today, and you click on it. It was a very early form of Wikipedia. I, see that. I mean, yeah. Wikipedia is essentially the hitchhiker's guide. In, it is. In a, in, yeah. That's in, so cool. I never thought about that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, so there's lots of stuff in there. I mean, it's, it's all the knowledge of the human race. In in one place, and I yeah, even the even the idea of the Hitchhiker's Guide, the tablet as a as a communication device, he didn't he didn't think there was going to be you know you watch like Star Trek, and their ideas were like there'll be computers, but they'll be in ships. They're still huge things. And Adams was like, well, why couldn't you put a computer on you know basically a flat piece of nothing, you know mm. that that interface between the glass in your palm and the knowledge I think was actually uh, not an idea that anyone would have picked up on and he was very interested in science and um, he was a very early adopter of Apple technology you know he had like the first MacBook and stuff like that yeah so it's it's not surprising Uh, what's surprising is that he was able to make it intelligible to people who who couldn't even comprehend what was about to happen he he did a couple of radio documentaries um that you can listen to on audible about the internet in like 1999 and in these interviews he's like predicting he's going e-commerce is going to take the lion's share within the next sort of 20 30 years and all these retailers he's interviewing are going why would anyone want to give up the experience of being in a shop yeah he saw pretty far ahead 
Yeah, that's the part which I find. Uh, that, that, that's the other side of him, which I do find interesting, alongside being that funny, is that ability, like, and to squeeze it in well, just to, just to chuck it out there with the. So do you? Okay, firstly, do you like sci-fi and stuff like that? What is your taste in stuff? Yeah, I grew up. My mum My mum loves sci-fi. She likes Isaac Asimov and uh, Day of the Triffids, uh, Dragons of Pern, which are a really interesting series of books. So yeah, she she loves it. My father doesn't read any science fiction really. My dad, I always joke with my dad that his favorite genre of film and book is where he can put the book down or turn the film off and then go. People like that really exist, you know. There's really people like that in the world. Like he he doesn't have that brain that connects well with um with with fiction. My mother, yeah, my mother loves science fiction. So growing up, had a lot of that around. I got to say that. Yeah, I think she loves Star Trek as well, actually. I'm just realizing how much of a nerd my mother is. Do you like Star Trek? No, I like the idea of Star Trek more <laughs> than I actually like Star Trek. I've tried to watch it, and I'm like, yeah, I get I get why people like this, but I'd rather just someone... I'd rather have the conversation with someone where they said, what if there was an alien society that didn't interfere with, with other societies instead of watching a show about that? There's a lot of good ideas in Star Trek, but not a lot of... I don't know, just... It's like everything it didn't age well. The the um, special effects are pretty horrendous. Yeah, I think especially the original series. Yeah, TNG does it right. But uh, so, do you reckon you fall more across your on your dad's side or your mum's side then with what you're saying there? Yeah, a little bit of both. I don't read. I don't read a lot of fiction. I watch a lot of fiction. Um, I tend to like to read sort of uh, autobiographies or or books about issues. Like I, I love Michael Lewis's books, you know, Moneyball and The Big Short and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I think science fiction. I think is incredibly it's it's important to read. I actually think it can sort of prepare you for where society is going, like really? genuinely. Really? Yeah, I think I think the role of good science fiction is to present you with the worlds that that, that will be. Um, and I think the only thing that's lost in translation a lot of the times are things like gender norms. I don't think they they translate well. You know, you you watch Star Trek: The Next Generation, and yeah, they'll. They'll be completely ambiguous or ambivalent as to how they feel about alien civilizations, but there's no gay people in it, you know? Yeah. Or there's no, the women will be in charge, but then you'll still have the man wooing the woman in order to have the romantic relationship begin. So, yeah, Asimov especially was not very good at writing people. He was sort of like Christopher Nolan, high concept, not very good at writing realistic sounding dialogue. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these science fiction writers, being men, ha- have not traditionally written women very well. Arthur C. Clarke's another one of those where his books are tremendous and exciting and present great ideas, but you read it and you're like, no human woman has ever or will ever sound like any of these people. Rule. Yeah, I think, and uh, there, there's probably some difficulty between like those kinds of thinking, I guess, those modes of thinking being like more structural, mm. uh, like paradigm shifting rather than or if if you want to be if you want to be even blunter about it it's probably that some degree of them are on the spectrum and are interested in things rather than people yeah i mean if you don't put that i guess yeah i mean i think it's uh yeah yeah (laughs) basically yeah look i think it's i i I usually use the term spectrum probably is going too far with it it's but it's more like different types of brains think in different ways and probably the brains that more engage with things like that maybe struggle more with that uh heartfelt side of things i think i could like which you know you say spectrum it sounds like even though yes a spectrum means everything it, it sounds so diagnostic rather than be, like it sounds like it's something which we're trying to get towards one side with but you're almost like well 
know. Oh, true. I mean, yeah. It doesn't matter where you fall on that on that on that line. You know, everyone's brain is different. But I just think the kind of people who are attracted to writing science fiction tend to be the kind of people who maybe don't have the best interpersonal skills. And I think if you were a psychologist, you may you may diagnose a fair few of them with something. Okay. Well, look. You, you, okay. I mean, if you want to, <laughs> you're definitely correct with some. That's that's a hundred percent. Do you do you feel like you've got more of a mechanistic sort of that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I don't I don't read people well. I mean, you've noticed. I've spent the whole time looking at the wall talking to you. <laughs> that's right. I'm. Uh... I no. I yeah. I think that 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 is probably something. My father's a very very smart man. Like he. Um, he dropped out of high school, I'm pretty sure. He only maybe just finished, didn't go to university, but he got hired by CSIRO because he sent them when he was like 17, just sent them in the 70s, or this would have been the late 60s, um, a, a blueprint for a computer that he just thought of. And they were like, oh, holy crap, this guy's really smart. And so they hired him and he worked for them for a number of years. And he works in engineering now and he's not an engineer. He's not trained as an engineer, but a lot of a lot of the time his job involves engineering products and I think he's got a chip on his shoulder about that. But yeah. Why? Well, because, you know, he never got the degree, he never got the piece of paper that says that he's smarter than he is, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Like he did an... That sounds like an autistic person. <laughs> yeah, he had to do an IQ test for some job and he scored in like the top 1% or something. But again, he's not the most emotionally available person all the time and he doesn't like watching... Uh, human-based stories a lot of the time. He he loves, like, one of his favorite m- films is The World's Fastest Indian, that film about the guy who tried to break the land speed record on the motorbike. And I'm pretty sure he thinks the motorbike is the protagonist in that movie. <laughs> it's fine. It's just different. Yeah, it, yeah. It, Was that, did that get reflected in your... See, I, 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 get, I find it interesting because, like, I, growing up, had a, the Greek dad very distant in many ways. Uh, when he was there, he was nice, but, yeah, just wouldn't... Just different time, different era. And people always grow up with that and they're like, oh, you know, I missed and did it. But then you're kind of like, yeah, that was, that was fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? So did you feel that lack growing up or were you more? Yeah, I sort of, I've come, I've consciously come to terms with the fact that uh, with everyone that you have a relationship with, you have the relationship you have with them and you can't force a different relationship. So with my, with my dad, we talk about things like he likes music. So we'll talk about music or we'll talk like he loves roasting coffee. So we'll talk about coffee and things like that. And that's the relationship we have. My mother is more of a touchy-feely person. We will talk more about emotional things. But neither of those are wrong. They're just different ways of communicating. Yeah. But it's it's when you when you insist on applying your standards of interaction with someone else who can't can't meet that criteria for whatever reasons they have, I think that's where the pain comes in. I think that's where a lot of like interpersonal suffering comes in where you're like i want you to be this thing and they're like but i can't be this thing because i'm this other thing and you're trying to put me in a mold i don't fit in mm. and like there's a yeah it's a classic it's okay to nudge gently maybe but not to do yeah to force it is too much well you can force it and like to an extent i have i force my family my parents my whole family aren't really touchy-feely people and a couple of years ago i just i heard someone talk about like What's the negative? What's the downside of telling someone you love them, like, and not in a romantic way, but in a family way? Like, mm. what is the negative of that? They made, they don't say it back. So what do you do? You love them less because they didn't say it back. So I just made the conscious decision. I was like, you know what? Every time I see my family, I'm going to say I love them. And at the start, it was very like forced. They were like, why, why are you saying that to me? <laughs> like, bye, I love you. you. <laughs> Both my parents were like, this is. This is strange. What, what are you okay? Do you have are you ill? Like they didn't know what to do with it. But now it's like uh 
force of habit where I, I've said it for so long that they're like, all right, I love you too. And it's taken a long time to get to that point. And, you know, with my dad, it's almost like a competition. Like sometimes he'll be like, I love you. I said it first because he's so uncomfortable with it. He has to say it before I can say it because that gives him like the control over it. Uh, but I'm like, you know what? <laughs> men are the best. You've, I've gone from not having someone say I love you at all to now having someone, even if they're saying it because they're embarrassed, I'd rather they said it. Yeah. Do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got one older sister. And so you did with her as well? Yeah, I talked to her the other day and I said, I love you. And she went, I love you. And I went, say it properly. And she went, I love you. And I went, all right, goodbye. (laughs) You have an interesting family. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, you love one another, but it's just that my father grew up with an English mother as well. So, you know, very emotionally stunted. Yeah, reserved people. Yeah, yeah. My family family show affection through action, you know. Do you need a hand with something? Do you need some money? Do you, you know, all that kind of stereotypical stuff. And I'm like, why pussyfoot around? Why not just say what you mean? Just tell them you love them. What's the worst that can happen? You know, with everything in life, there's only a finite number of times you get to do it. Yeah. Every every time you see your family is one less chance you have to say, I love you if you didn't say it. So why not say it? Oh, this is, that's such a beautiful (laughs) sentiment. You're applying a lot of logic to these interpersonal things. Exactly. Which I like as well. Exactly. It doesn't come. Of- it doesn't come from a place from the heart. It comes from like, well, if I look at the mathematics of it, yeah. I have thirteen hundred. <laughs> I love yous left. So if I don't just spend them, that's what I mean. <laughs> but you know, a- it could get. But that's fine. Get to the place you want to get. However, you get there. You know. I oh, know. I think it's the end. Point it doesn't that- matter any less. Like that, I'm being logical and saying I still love them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people want these things to be organic, but yeah, why? Why? It's like a lot of comics have this. They sit around with their thumb up their ass wondering why they're not successful. Because you, know, you don't do anything, dude. You write your jokes and then you sit at home and you wait to go to your gig. Why don't you like contact someone and say, uh, could you produce my show? Or uh, I'd like to... The way I did my documentary for the ABC in lockdown, I cold pitched it to them. I just messaged them and said, I got the story. Would you be interested? And they went like, uh, maybe send us some more information. So I did. And they went, all right, we'll buy that. Really? Just like that. Why not? Yeah, I guess. that's a, So you do that a lot, that kind of hustle side of things. It's not even hustling. It's I just... Know, it's, 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 I, I, yeah. it's a bad association, but I know the but word no, I know, But like, I don't think of it as hustling. I just think like if you have something, if you have a place that you might need something, you need content, you're a content factory, which is what the ABC and every studio is, and I have a story that you could use, Why wouldn't? why wouldn't I at least offer it to you? It's not hustle. I'm just well. I have a thing. You have a thing. Let's see if we can work. Yeah. Was that was that a podcast or was that a? It was a broadcast documentary for Radio National, and uh, right. the, the listener loved it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I I just don't see why you can't. I, I don't know. Maybe that is a thing. Like maybe I do have a different brain to people because I don't. Those barriers are just not barriers to me. Like I was in New York City. I was at Caroline's, this famous comedy club, and I walk. I just walked in and was like, "Hey, I'm from Australia. Can I perform?" And they went, "All right." And they put me on stage, and I was talking to New York comics, and they're like, "Man, I've been trying to get on there for eight years. How'd you do that?" I'm like, I just asked. Yeah, I just asked. Like, what? What are they going to say? No. Okay. Well, it helps being a Australian as well, coming there and having that. Totally. Because um, Caroline's one of the biggest clubs in the world, so that is pretty legit. Like, but I do wonder, was the what was the standard like there? Ridiculous from everyone, or was it actually pretty mixed still? To be honest, it was a little pathetic. It was the new talent night, and New York is like everywhere else but more so and so they have more amazing comics and they have more comics who really probably shouldn't be doing comedy 
So really? yeah, so the standard there was very up and down. Like there was one guy I was on stage with who's like a genuine celebrity who'd been uh, just out in LA like filming a movie and he was great. And then there was another guy who just sucked and told the audience that he was funny. And, you know, that thing where you're like, that's funny. Why didn't you laugh? And it's aggressive rather than playful. And you're like, oh, man, you're not doing this. This, this isn't going to go the way you think it is yeah, sort yeah. of thing. But, okay. again, but again, it's like, just, just go and ask. They yeah. say no. I mean, don't, don't be a dick about it. But yeah, obviously, yeah. But just like putting putting uh, the foot out, putting your foot out there, like yeah, putting put yourself one. out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's true. And I guess you you've obviously done that, taken that on board well, because if you've, yeah, it's not pure stand up, but you are getting by on your, your creative pursuits, I guess, mm. for those last several years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work. Sometimes you you know, like with these gigs, I book. Sometimes I'll message a headliner and be like, I run this gig, and they'll be like, fuck off. And I'm like, okay, well. <laughs> I'll well, be, actually, no, but you know, they'll be like, "Thank you, but I'm not interested." Okay, well, that's but, very different. Too. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a polite, it's a polite fuck off, though. <laughs> or, or you get a lot of go, go through my manager, and I'm like, "Can I just go through you? We're talking." But other times, you'll approach someone and and you'll ask them to do the show, and they'll say yes, and then other people go, "How'd you get that person on?" And go, I asked them. Yeah, well, just on Facebook. Yeah, well, you go to get you know, with the first time we had Dave Hughes on our show. I just went to a gigging I knew he was on and went up to him and was like, hey, I run a show. Can, do you want to come do it? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that face-to-face does help. That works wonders. Mm. And Hughes is a great guy and he was you know, he asked for some information about the show. I told him what kind of gig it was. And he went, yeah, why not? Nice. And then he had a good time. We've had him back a couple of times since then. So, yeah. That's always, yeah, that's always a promising sign as well. To tie back quickly before we close all this off, uh, with the Hitchhiker's Guide again, have you done any right and you did kind of touch upon this already have you done any writing outside of stand-up yeah so i used to write for cracked and i wrote a couple of articles for junkie well it wasn't junkie back then it was um something called hijacked which was like monash university uh and all the other universities in australia was sort of being pitched this student magazine that was being run by like an actual journalistic outfit and i wrote for them for a little while um i've written for I used to write for the Victorian government doing like um, this thing called Youth Central where it was just you would uh, you would just write about youth issues and it was like 18 to 25-year-olds. I would be sort of like a, a student journalist kind of thing for them. So it wasn't meant to be like out and out funny? It was just meant to be fun. Yeah, it was meant fun. to be sort of fun. Yeah, rather than yeah. straight up funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have I written for anyone else? I've written a bunch. I've done like copywriting things. Actually, the other day I got asked to do a um, – a writing job. Someone just hit me up. Someone I'd met years and years ago at Melbourne Fashion Week, covering it as a j- journalist for the Victorian government. And this guy was in marketing, and he was like, "Oh, hey, um, I'm writing. I'm like, I've been contracted to write the Turak monthly newsletter, and they need an overheard section. So will you just will you write the overheads for me? Hmm. Just you know, make them up. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's uh, that, that, you're probably getting this stuff because you're you're all constantly out there. Trying to get stuff. Well, right? it's also just yeah, having a body of work is useful when you've written enough stuff. People then start to go, okay, he's written for blah blah blah, so he can probably do that. Like the, my radio documentary, I wrote for ABC, the ABC online, um, to complement the radio show. So people read the article and then went to the show, and so then you can go written for the ABC, that yeah, kind of thing. That gives that legitimacy. Yeah, because usually because uh, 
it sounds like you do like you appreciate good writing from what you're talking about with Steve Martin as well. So you're liking that sort of thing. Yeah, it's actually for now I'm thinking about it. It's funny how much the book is appropriate to you because <laughs> like, it's like it's uh, got the obviously the interpersonal thing which you have mathematically figured out how to include in your life, but it's also got the sci-fi more high concept stuff which mm. is more like the mechanistic sort of thing. And it's well written. And it's well written. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> which is a big part of what you're you seem to actually appreciate. Yeah, there's just there's nothing more painful to me than just bad prose. I don't know why. It's just really irks me when someone has an opportunity to to express themselves again maybe this goes to the logical side of things where i'm like just the clarity of expression you are able to have with the written word is so much better than when talking like this you have verbal tics you go off on tangents you come back you arm and hour but you can you can perfect it in writing in a way that is beautiful yeah, you can set that timepiece perfectly. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally though. Like, honestly. No, no, it is. Like, I guess I, whenever I've tried my hand at it, uh, I, I think there's my difficulty, I think especially starting late, uh, trying to do writing is there's such a big gap between how I would want it to be and how it comes out. And you're just like, ugh. And then you're like, this sucks. <laughs> it's like, especially because if you haven't found your voice yet, which takes years to like figure out how you flow and your sentence structure within writing and how that differs from how you speak. Mm. Yeah, it could be hard. I get like that's yeah. I think I think uh, the the secret the secret to writing is editing. Really, mm. is that like my radio show, for instance? Like I had to script it everything, but we did like four versions of it before we landed on the broadcast version, and it was just an endless process of winnowing down what wasn't relevant or was too written too performatively in a way that wasn't appropriate for the medium. Yeah, Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, as in like, yeah, it was some, again, like we said at the start, some people struggle when they switch between the different mediums. So mm-hmm. it's exactly that. Yeah, you might be writing. It's a, even with the writing stuff as a comic. I think some people just try, which I can struggle with as well, is when you're like, every paragraph ends with a punchline. <laughs> like, is in the last yeah. sentence is the joke. You're always like, did it? Yeah, did it? Did it? Yeah, or earnestness. Earnestness is really hard for comics when they're writing because they they think they need a laugh per minute sort of thing, and that that takes a lot of training to get rid of when when you're writing. Is is understanding that you can actually write something. You can be a little flowery with your language or write something descriptively in a way that's a little novelistic without wanting to shoot yourself in the head or go like, ugh. You know, there's a lot of ick factor for comics where yeah. you go, you know, uh, yeah, if it's describing a sunset, if they're talking about, you know, the um, the horizon stretched off into the distance and the azure sky broke through the clouds or something. And a lot of comedians are like, I just want to say red sky looks like a period, you know? <laughs> They're so Moving uncomfortable. On. They're so what uncomfortable. Is the deal? What is that color? Exactly. Exactly right. They're just so uncomfortable with with earnestness. Yeah. Uh, but is that something you found struggle with, or you're right? Yeah. You know what? I was in a head-on collision in January this year, and I wrote. I was waiting in the emergency room to get a uh, an X-ray done, and I was. I just. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write down my thoughts because I felt so discombobulated that I just thought I'd, I'd write them all down, and it sort of became sort of a piece. I haven't figured out what to do with it yet, but yeah, it was it was very earnest because I kind of felt like I had almost died, mm. and uh, I, I just don't know where it where it would fit. I, there's nothing creatively I'm doing that I can use it for. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it stands as a testament to how how you felt that time, regardless. Yeah, 
you don't, you don't have to use everything. <laughs> everything you write, you know. But I mean? you know, even when I was writing it, I felt a little gr- like the guy. I, the guy I was in the accident with, his mother's name is uh, no, his wife's name is Robin, and my mother's name is Robin. And I wrote something about like um, uh, the various strands of our lives laid interconnected in the tangled wreckage, or something like that. And then I was like. Fuck you for writing that. Like, I want to throw my phone across the room. Like, ew, you're gross. You're such a fucking loser. Like, I wrote that and then was like, I wish I had died in that crash. Martha! Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, that's hilarious. It's, well, look, I. You still wrote it. I write that. Yeah, the mm-hmm. fact that you sat there and wrote it, but like, yeah, then you got to do the comic thing and be like, Ugh, <laughs> this is lame. Yeah, how dumb's feelings? Yeah, and it's it's weird because I think a lot of people get into comedy because they want to express themselves, but they're so scared of expressing themselves that they do it through the medium of comedy because they're like, I'll say what I think, but I'll give you a punchline sort of thing, so you get something out of this. And if you just write something earnest that you believe or that you feel, and then you give it to someone, it's sort of, you're giving someone the opportunity to tear your heart out of your chest in a way that you can't with comedy. Because at least with comedy, you can go, oh, they didn't like the joke. But if I, if I go, you know, the tangled wreckage of our lives or whatever, and they're like, well, that's just stupid and you suck, then you're like, oh, it's, it's about me. This is like, this is more, I'm bearing my soul to you and you've, you've hurt me in a way that you can't with comedy. Because I can just go, well, you didn't like the joke. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And that's a... That's a good line, though. Yeah, people get into comedy to express themselves, but then can only express themselves through comedy. That's actually that's pretty good. It's like the tangled wreckage. <laughs> um, okay, we've got to close it off there. Uh, where should anyone catch you if they want to see, follow, whatever? If you want to catch what I'm doing, I run comedy at the McKinnon Hotel on the last Thursday of every month in McKinnon in Melbourne. I run a gig at the Cameo Cinema in Belgrave in the eastern suburbs, and that's sort of around the last week of the month, depending on when we get the headliner. And I've just started running a new gig in Sydney at the Ritz Cinema, which is a beautiful, like, 1930s sort of Art Deco cinema. And uh, that'll be sort of the last week of the month as well. So there's, like, kind of three gigs at, every, at the end of every month, and I'm perform- I'm usually performing on one of them. Oh, and you can listen to my documentary. It's called Only Joking. It's on ABC Radio National um, for the history listen. Nice. Well, all right. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, yeah. Catch the, the tangled wreckage of our lives has really come together in this conversation. It really has. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.